Hello, Manly fans. It's great, as always, to have you with us. A special welcome to our Scandinavian listeners. Today's episode is about something that almost certainly did not happen. Norse seafarers, a thousand years ago, did not found settlements in Maine. At least, not that anyone has ever been able to prove, including you, even if you think there's secret Vikings buried in your yard. Why did I get so specific there? Because a number of New Englanders in the 19th century really did seem to think that. And some of them spent a great deal of money trying to prove, or more often simply commemorate, that imaginary event. But why? My guest today is a scholar of the historical Norse and their sagas. And we'll be talking about where the Norse seafarers really did go, what they were doing there, and what relationship these intrepid mariners from a thousand years ago had to do with the 19th century fascination with Vikings that so preoccupied many Norse. A minor production note, the mic on my end initially picked up the recording on the quiet side. Nothing a little editing wasn't able to fix, but there are a few points where the volume will come across a bit uneven between myself and the guest this episode. Our apologies. Finally, if after listening to today's show, you still think there's Vikings buried in your backyard, Valhalla at me. Let's do this. guest today is John Sexton, professor of English at my very own Bridgewater State University and co-host of the wildly popular Saga Thing podcast <laughs> with Andrew Frenger at the University of Mississippi. John, welcome to Mainly History. Thanks for having me. This is great. I am so happy to have you on the show. Uh, it's it, There's you know, the, the chance to, to talk to somebody who is uh, an expert on Icelandic sagas and Norse <laughs> literature and medieval disability studies. It is a it is a rare treat for a, a humble state history podcast like like ours. And there's obvious overlap with Maine, right? Oh, tons, tons. <laughs> and so that's, of course, what we're what we're talking about. Right. So, uh, you know, today's episode is all about the the fake the fake Vikings of mm -hmm. the American Northeast uh, and, and, the, and the real ones as well, you know, further away. Um, and so to, to begin with, just so that uh, people are clear, uh, yeah. people talk about Vikings um, mm -hmm. and then they also, we hear about Norse people. Um, are Vikings and Norse the same people? Like what are these, mm. what does this terminology mean for our listeners? Right. So, uh, we use Vikings kind of indiscriminately right, in modern parlance. Uh, Vikings uh, historically were a profession, not a people. You you were a Viking if you were on a ship and raiding. Uh, so much like being a pirate, right? you're not really a pirate if you settle down and start a farm. Uh, Vikings are only Vikings as long as they are actively going a Viking. Uh, the 
the peoples who make up the Vikings are really from all over uh, Northern Europe, but even beyond that into Southern Europe, into North Africa. Uh, we have Vikings who we can identify as being from Ireland, from uh, Denmark, from Russia, what we would call it now Russia, uh, all over Scandinavia, and then again into parts south as well. So Viking is really a uh, a multi-ethnic kind of profession uh, with ships that probably rarely represented only one geographical place. Uh, whereas uh, Norse or Norwegian refers to people specifically from Norway and Norse in the Middle Ages tends to refer to people from Norway, Iceland, Denmark, and to some degree, Sweden. Okay. Now, you you mentioned the Vikings kind of took, they were ecumenical in taking recruits. So does this mean we mm -hmm. have evidence of like, you know, Berbers who went a Viking on these ships, like, you know, uh, or Bosques or, or other folks from like, you know, the Mediterranean and seafaring regions? Right. It's very difficult to know where they come from because uh, the records simply weren't kept. Right. I mean, even even among themselves at a contemporary level, people weren't always clear about where somebody came from, because honestly, reputations, you know, are enhanced by being from certain places or coming from certain families. Right? And so uh, to take one example, the the famous Viking Ragnar Lothbrok, who uh, people might know from the TV show Vikings, uh, Ragnar is himself kind of semi-historical, right? He, he has an awfully busy life if he really does all the things that are said of him. Uh, but it's more likely that he's actually a conglomeration of several different people. But his children, uh, the Ragnarsons, there are anywhere from five to 41 Ragnarsons, depending on which text you read. And it seems like the, the term Ragnarsson, the name Ragnarsson, essentially becomes like being a hell's angel, right? If you are sufficiently badass as a Viking, you get to be a Ragnarsson. And of course, that obscures where these people are actually from and who they actually are, because the aspiration is to become associated with this one clan, with this one family. And that's true, really, across Scandinavia. Right? Clan affiliation is very important. We do know, uh, so for example, in the sagas that we're talking about today, the Greenland sagas, the two that talk about uh, visits to North America, we have an example of a man named Turkir. Uh, Turkir is uh, German, and he's traveling with a ship full of Norwegians. And at one point, for reasons that I assume we'll talk about later on, uh, Turkir gets drunk um, and can't make himself understood because in his drunkenness, he reverts to speaking German. Uh, and so the rest of the crew has to sort of wait for him to sober up before he can explain where he got alcohol in the middle of nowhere in North America. So multi-ethnic, definitely, from various places, definitely. Um, there's some evidence that we can sort of tr chase down people being from this place or that place. But uh, we do know that they're drawing pretty well across Northern Europe and then, again, occasionally even further south. Okay. So even though this, this episode is uh, in large part about where the Vikings did not go, <laughs> Um, where where do we know for sure that the Vikings did go a Viking during their well during their their heyday and I guess uh, mm -hmm. their heyday being what like roughly the year like seven hundred or so to like a thousand or eleven hundred give or take yeah I mean so we 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 can talk about uh, the long Viking era right the 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 uh, the clear beginning and ending points are usually considered to be seven ninety three which is the attack on Lindisfarne, the island off of England. 
and then the end coming around 1066 uh tied up in the dynastic succession in England in 1066 the Norman invasion is this other invasion from Norway and that really marks the end of the Viking period because so many ships captains die in that battle that it actually disrupts the sort of the the, the entire industry of Viking uh, and from that point forward you really don't see raids happening with frequency or with any kind of serious damage so we it spills really out on both a... sides so Harold, uh, best remembered for losing at Hastings, doesn't really get enough credit for, uh, yeah. for ending the Viking threat. Absolutely. Uh, no, like the rest of Europe... Gets an arrow in the face. Right. The rest of Europe was far more interested in what happened at Stamford two weeks earlier than they were at what happened about state, uh, Hastings. Right? If, if Harold had survived the year, Harold Goblinson had survived the year, he would be heralded as one of the great strategists, one of the great military leaders of the Middle Ages, uh, because he did a thing that no one had been able to do in 300 years. He stood down a Viking army and routed them. Uh, and the result of that, yes, was the, the end of the Viking era. And that was the, the headline for the rest of Europe, right? Nobody, it's on page 12 or so that England changed hands and is now under the control of William the Bastard. Nobody really cares about that. England is kind of, you know, off on its own. But the fact that there aren't going to be Viking raids anymore, now that's big news. Okay. So back to, so we have the Viking era. In this era, yeah. where do we know, you know, on good authority that the Vikings went Viking? Right. So um, they, again, travel all over the North. Um, their base of operations is really the North Sea, right? We have to think about these people as a seafaring people. And so there isn't really, they're, vision of the world isn't really built around land masses the way ours is right? um a a north sea empire such as the one that was put together by uh the the 11th century kings of norway that empire consists of the coasts of norway and denmark and england and ireland and the hebrides uh because the coasts are what matters right they are the places you can access uh, the kings of Norway who have control over the area, Knut the Great is the one I'm talking about, uh, probably has greater and more direct control over England on the coast than he does over the inland of Norway where he's based. Because inland Norway requires, you know, traveling over mountains, and that's just not something that he wants to do. Uh, so where they went, uh, they travel all across the north, well into um Eastern Europe, right? We think of uh, the Ukraine and what is it? We have to think of as Eastern Russia, uh, sorry, Western Russia, um, down uh, the Niv into um, Constantinople. Uh, they form the backbone of a mercenary group called the Vrangian Guard that work for the emperors of Byzantium uh, from the 10th into the 12th, 13th centuries. The uh, The Vikings are also getting around the European coast. They're traveling to what is now France and Spain, right at the time, a, a bunch of smaller kinglets. Uh, they travel around that horn into the Iberian Peninsula, into the Mediterranean, and they travel all around the Mediterranean. They make extensive uh, visits and trade trading in North Africa. Uh, when you find a Viking horde, uh, one of the sort of many places where they cached weapons and, and uh, coin, one of the ways you know it's a Viking horde is just how far flung the materials are. That um, silks from Asia, coins from Africa, uh, textiles from Europe will all be in one site. And that's usually a sign that you're dealing with Vikings. 
Now, in North America and the you know the Western Hemisphere, how far did they did they get there? You know, so, <laughs> some listeners will be familiar with oh, you know, there's Leif Erikson, there's right Eric the Red, uh, the the two names that pop up for a lot mm-hmm. of people. So, um, so yeah, so how far did they get into North America? Well. That's the million dollar question, really, because what we're going to talk about today is a lot of people who have been very invested in showing that the Viking presence in North America was far more extensive than we can prove. Uh, the What we can prove is that the Vikings, uh, and specifically a group of uh, Greenlanders and Icelanders, um, moving from a base in Greenland, Eric, with Eric the Red's uh, settlement. Uh, moving from there to North America uh, and settling in at least one place that we're aware of, a place called Lansa Meadow at the very northern tip of Newfoundland. Okay. Beyond that, uh, they describe, the sagas describe uh, traveling, they describe explorations, but they only identify this one settlement. That doesn't mean there aren't other settlements. It means that the saga author didn't bother to write about them. And people have been trying to show that the Vikings made inroads all over North America. There have been arguments uh, that evidence of the Vikings can be found in Minnesota, that it can be found up and down the New England coast, uh, that it can be found all over uh, Eastern Canada, and even as far south as the Virginias. Hmm. Okay. So before we get into some of those cases you're talking mm-hmm. about our evidence so we have some archaeological evidence in, yes in newfoundland yep. uh we're talking about the the sagas so were these how close to the the time period were these written but that's part of the trick uh, the sagas are mostly written in the 13th to 15th centuries and the events they describe happen in the 9th to 11th centuries and so um, it's essentially their um, uh, distance from the events they describe are roughly the same as uh, our distance from the founding of America. Right? So a, a significant chunk of time has passed between uh, when these events happen and when they're finally uh, written down. The important point to understand is that this is a very oral culture. Um, everyone was assumed to have a memory that would be far in excess of what you and I possess simply because you need to remember things, right? There are, you don't have the same ability to externalize your brain and keep it in your pocket. Uh, but there's also a lot of cultural requirement for a good memory, knowing your family genealogy, for example, right? Knowing your ancestors back many generations and being able to talk about them in some detail means that the preservation of historical event is greater in this culture than it might be in ours. Uh, so the oral... Uh, transmission of these stories over the course of a couple hundred years, how far those stories wander from their historical origins is the question that everyone who works on the sagas wants to answer. To some degree, they wander fairly far, right? There are occasional dragons, there are trolls, there are uh, walking dead, uh, there are ghost seals that come up through the floor of buildings, all sorts of things. On the other hand, ghost seals as in yes. like marine mammals that are ghostly. Yes. Absolutely. Wow. Uh nice. saga includes a seal whose head rises up out of the ground and looks around and sort of 
just look sadly at the people in the room. And of course, they're all sort of screaming and freaking out and attempting to beat it back down into the ground. Uh, but it just continues to stare at them sadly. Oh, did uh, it have it's a name? The seal? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it is It is finally banished by a young man named Kjartan who's uh, uh, sort of a proto-Christian figure uh, who's sort of able to lay ghosts. And did he not, did he then gain the name like Yannan the seal banisher? No, uh, although that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> that would have made a great I, name. He could well, have been, oh man. Anyway. You do get, uh, I will tell you, the the best seal nickname I'm aware of is Helgi Seal's Testicle. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a whole thing. <laughs> we talked about it on our podcast at one point, but essentially uh, seals are not quite unique, but highly unusual among mammals in that they have internal testicles. Uh, and so uh, it's likely it was describing an undescended testicle. Uh, oh, because I see. That's, yeah, so that's that's a bit of a digression, but there you go. Yep. Uh, the, so the, the, the nature of these stories is that they do, they move into the realm of what we would consider to be myths and legends uh, quite frequently. On the other hand, what they mean by something like a troll may or may not be what we, with our kind of Dungeons and Dragons understanding of the world, our sort of Tolkienized trolls, uh, may or may not have anything to do with that kind of troll. Right? In uh, at least one saga, the, the protagonist is himself part troll, uh, because right. trolls were understood to be a kind of sort of human. And so you could be descended from them. So how historical these are, it's <laughs> it's right. very hard to say. Um, they contain elements of history, and they contain elements of story. And that's about as far as we can go. Fair. Well, and I think I'm glad you bring this up because understanding these cosmologies can really be mm. important. You know, I mean, for for figuring, for for dealing with these testimonies of, of, yeah. of oral cultures. And like, so, you know, in Maine, the, the Wabanaki and other, other Algonquians, they, uh, they would tell stories about were basically... Uh, people who possessed particularly strong connections with animal and spiritual power, mm -hmm. uh, they could do things like turn into a trout and escape, right? You know, and swim away. And then like uh, they talk about like, oh, so-and-so, uh, the ancestor who married a bear. And, you know, it meant all these kinds of things. Right. Uh, Very similar, yeah. Yeah. And then likewise, then you get some of these uh gavin mendez types the guy who claims like what the chinese sailed around the world and then sailed mm -hmm. to rome and somehow nobody wrote about it or whatever but like they look at these these medieval and earlier artifacts and charts and they take them as the literal truth right as opposed to like what was this document for right like so even looking at so these norse sagas uh mm -hmm. no doubt they are trying to convey some information but it also might be the, the sort of what we today would understand to be the literal truth might not be the full point of it right right like and being a message or something else certainly and the what we think of when we when we think of history is not the same thing as what a medieval writer or a medieval audience would think of when they think of the word history um we in the modern world are very married to the idea of, his, of history as having an objective reality, right? Uh, right. That, that there is a history that actually happened and that the job of historians is to find what actually happened. And that's, that's a modern idea about what history is. 
uh, history for a long time has been about um, a story based in the past about which we can learn something in the present. Yes. And that's not the, quite the same thing, right? And the, the, uh, the impetus there for telling history is very different. Yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, last point on that regard, thinking about, so like early modern documents. So when we look at some of the, the English engravings and, and depictions of indigenous people, mm -hmm. they would have them uh, posed certain ways. And, you know, it was very much posed as these like almost sort of classical Renaissance figures. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason they're doing that is they would have information that, well, such and such a person is an extremely high-born leader. And they go, oh, okay. Well, if our audience needs to know this person is high-born, then if your inner quality is that you're high-born, then mm -hmm. outwardly it will be reflected in the way you carry yourself. Right. So then they would, you know, they would draw them and depict them to look like how... Uh, their audiences back home understood highborn people to look. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't trying to, you know, the, the whole point of the engraving was not, let me look at their, let me get an extremely accurate depiction of their exterior, but rather I need to convey the most essential information about them, which is that they're highborn. And so doing that requires that I don't necessarily draw them in a way that a 21st century audience would certainly Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and I think that honestly, I mean, this, this could be a whole other conversation, but um, this is also explains a lot of why early art is often perceived as primitive. Uh, and, you know, we all, we all, we even use the word primitive to describe it, which is unfortunate. Uh, but what it actually is doing is conveying different information through a visual medium than the representational art that we expect in our history. Yes, Absolutely. So back to, uh, you know, what, what we know happened as far as mm -hmm. we can tell, et cetera. So talking about Newfoundland and what we can prove, right. when were the Vikings, or I should say the Norse, if they weren't really Viking or, you know, pillaging, uh, when did they get there and what, are we, what were they doing there as far as we can tell? Right. Interestingly, you've actually uh, helped to answer that in your question. Uh, they were not Vikings. Right. Uh, and that's an important point to understanding what they do and how they behave while they're in North America. We know in two different sagas, we get the story of how this group of Greenlanders and Icelanders end up in North America. Both sagas are very cagey about exactly where they go, because honestly, partly because the sagas are written 100 years later and don't really have a very clear sense of the, the topography involved. But also because there still was a going lumber concern across the North Atlantic, and nobody was looking for competition. So giving precise directions as to how to get to Newfoundland wasn't really in the financial interests of Icelanders and Greenlanders. Uh, what they were doing there was looking for a way to get rich. Um, and more to the point, looking for a way to replace the very expensive imports that Greenland and Iceland re uh, relied on with cheaper imports that they could control. Uh, specifically, we're talking about lumber. Greenland, famously, not very forested. Um, Iceland had been relatively forested, but had rapidly been 
pretty widely clear cut by the first generation of Icelanders, who mostly, uh, the men mostly came from Norway, and who treated the landscape more or less as they had in Norway, which was that you just cut down as many trees as you needed, because there were always more. In Iceland, there weren't. And suddenly, uh, lumber, especially good, long, straight pieces of lumber, were very hard to come by and extremely expensive. One of the one of the richest gifts that can be offered in the sagas is a ship of lumber. And so finding the new world, finding a place where uh, trees have been growing for decades or in some cases centuries uh, and were big, tall, straight uh, trees with a lot of heartwood that you could use for making ship's keels or making the beams of a longhouse. This was just an absolute fortune growing on the land. And so the uh, the, the the sailors who come to the New World really aren't Vikings in the sense of being raiders. They're there to uh, create essentially a kind of lumber camp. And when they do meet the uh, the locals, when they meet the indigenous people, uh, who they call Skrallings, the name they come up with for them, uh, they treat them essentially warily, but not as an object of conquest, as a group of locals who need to be placated if the sailors are going to continue to be able to draw lumber from the land. What does and so scrawling they, mean? Uh, scrawling, uh, it is it's a uh, much debated translation uh, but it essentially it describes them as being shorter and darker than the vikings okay um but it's and it's used indiscriminately they don't really seem to differentiate among the different uh, indigenous groups very much okay um of course we're not actually sure how many different groups they interacted with it's possible that they really were only interacting with one or two major groups um uh, what they would do is they would trade with them, but they were very careful about what they traded. So um, one of the sagas is very particular about uh, no, uh, Thorfinn Karlsefni says that no metal is to be traded to them. Uh, but they trade dairy products to them instead. In, uh, in other stories, they just trade, or there's a bit of violence right away, and then there's a bit of trading. The sagas are not consistent about how this interaction goes, but they're not looking for a fight mainly because they're deeply outnumbered, right? They only have a couple of ships at any given time. Uh, so, you know, in the vicinity of you know, 60 to 70 potential fighters, but again, very few of them professional fighters. In one of the sagas, in uh, Eric the Red saga, we get the story of what happens when a Skrowling is accidentally killed when a, uh, a cow gets loose and tramples him. The rest of the Skrowlings disappear, and then the next day come back and attack. The response of the Scandinavians shows us that these are not warriors. They run around in circles. They're sort of looking for anywhere to hide. They're being unnerved by the sounds of the weapons the indigenous people are using. There is no organized defense at all. These are not men accustomed to fighting. Uh, in the end, according to Eric the Red Saga, Eric's daughter, Freydis, who is a grown woman and is in fact eight months pregnant, picks up the sword from a Viking who's been shot with an arrow and uses it to create sort of a one-woman defense while the rest of the men escape. Yeah. Uh, because she's the only one there, really, who's a fighter. Right? She's the only one there who's been trained to use sort of weapons and violence. And so she sort of runs at the uh, Skrellings, slapping at her bare chest with a bloody sword and screaming at them. And they all run away because the indigenous people are also not professional warriors. 
Right. That neither of these groups really wants to be fighting. They just don't communicate very well. And violence is the result. But it becomes clear that this was a group of people who didn't want to go very far inland. They didn't want to explore a great deal. They wanted to grab what they were there to grab, stay safe, and then go home. And so the story of the Newfoundland settlement, the settlement at Lonson Meadow, is essentially a story of people coming, staying for one winter, and then leaving, and then doing that repeatedly, rather than an attempt to create something like a Jamestown or a Plymouth settlement. So there were no year-round camps on Newfoundland? From Well, there were. they did overwinter. Uh, so they would arrive often, because sailing would happen in the summer. So you would arrive late in the summer, cut trees in the autumn, uh, and gather whatever other supplies you thought you'd need, and then winter there, and then sail back in the spring. Okay. And so that happens uh, multiple times in the sagas. Okay. It was, so there was like, there'd be over winter, but it wouldn't be like, oh, this is a town that we founded and it's there for, you know. Right, right. What there is, is a handful of semi-permanent buildings. Uh, the the Scandinavians, uh, the Icelanders in particular, the way they would build um, bu- sort of, occasional use buildings they would build the walls but not the roof and so because the roof was kind of the the part that needed to be you had to be careful to keep the weather out right so they would build the walls and leave them there and then when you arrived you would put a fresh roof on it and that's likely to be what was going on okay uh, because that's what happens at the all thing in iceland is that every year people show up at the booths which are these sort of pre-made walls and they just kind of put a roof on the one they intend to stay in. And that's their claim for that building for the year. And so uh, there's a few of these sort of semi-permanent buildings. There were probably some other less permanent buildings that either didn't leave as much of a footprint and so haven't been found, or that were designed to be kind of one-year use. In one of the sagas, in the Greenlander saga, we're told at one point that the uh, some of the sailors actually use their ship they kind of just overturn their ship upside down and live under it for a bit. So it's very much a kind of, you know, a, a makeshift kind of, kind of uh, settlement. Gotcha. Okay. So you were pretty clear about why they did not spread news of, of what right. they found far and wide, besides the fact that Newfoundland is, it's an Island. And so, you know, it's just like one of many. So it's, you know, it's not like it's them pulling like a modern person saying, Oh, but you guys, you sailed to North America. Right. What What do you mean? Right. Right. Who's that? And of course, yeah, sorry. uh, So of course, you know, nobody named it that yet. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, they didn't really, they kept it kind of a secret. Here's what you're saying. Sort of. Yeah. Um, It's also, I mean, they honestly, you know, as many of the early uh, colonial settlers were, they weren't entirely sure about the size, the scope, the shape of the land they'd found. There's no evidence that they knew this was an island, for example. Oh, okay. Uh, right. I mean, it's it's worth for those who aren't familiar with the map. Uh, Newfoundland is a very large island. Right? It's a uh, it it measures something like 450 miles from top to bottom. Right? It's it's a big island, so it's it's understandable that you wouldn't necessarily spot that it's a it's an island right away. But there's no evidence that they ever sailed that channel between the island and the continent. And so it's possible that they didn't know, but it's also possible they simply didn't concern themselves with the size of the place. They just knew where this this one thing was. 
they chose the very top of the island for uh, a nautical reason. Remember, these guys, are, as I said, they think nautically. If you are sailing across the ocean, the Vikings were better than almost anyone else at uh, navigating, right? At working out exactly where they were when they were sailing. But even they couldn't be exact about uh, latitude. Latitude was much harder to gauge than longitude. And so when you arrived... For our landlubber friends, latitude are the lines where you... Latitude measures how far away from the equator you are. Longitude is how east or west you are. Yeah, sorry. Should have said that. No, 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 it's okay. Uh, Uh, But, you know, it's it's cool mm because my students are always like, lata what? You know. Right, right. So anyway, yeah. So Uh, so they had a hard time figuring out how far from the equator they were. Well, so harder, right? So um, they they do know, as everybody knows, by the way, uh, they know the world is round, right? That's everybody knew, knew the world was round all the time throughout history. It's, it's I, I tell my students this every semester because I, it's important to me that people know. But when they arrived uh, at the coast, they couldn't be exactly sure as to whether they'd landed exactly where they'd aimed, 20 miles south, 20 miles north. And so if you put your settlement somewhere in the middle of the island, you could go the wrong way. If you put your settlement all the way at the northern end, then when you arrive, you just turn right. You'll sail until you get to the end of the land, and that's where the settlement is. So, again, they think like people who are on the water, not on the land. Right. How many sort of charts or, or, or maps do have survived from this era that we have that sort of, of yeah. any kind of... I'm guessing none of them depict Newfoundland as such. Right. Well, somewhere between zero and two, depending on what you consider to be contemporaneous. Nothing survives from the 11th century. I mean, there are plenty of maps in the 11th century, but none that show these voyages. Okay. Uh, there is a map called the Skaholt map uh, that was written in at the end of the Middle Ages, early Renaissance, uh, and drawn by someone who was reading those sagas and trying to work out the locations. So it's very much sort of secondary to the literature. It's not a primary document. And then there's another document that is uh, an attempt to, again, to create the the topography of of the story but that one we're pretty sure was a forgery it's on medieval parchment but the ink is modern and so we're pretty sure that one's a fake but there actually is a map that was done by a a man trying to work all this out but it was still 500 years after the actual voyages there aren't a lot of sort of useful visual aids for this kind of thing in the in the sagas gotcha and was this a thing where as far as scholars like you can tell was it somewhat widely known among the Norse that there were these settlements out that way? So like the confusingly mm. named Harold who invaded England and was a Viking and wasn't the guy who lost at Hastings, but the other one. So like right. him, for example, would he have been some sort of like aware that, you know, Iceland and Greenland were populated by folks of his like general culture group? Uh, and maybe been aware of, you know, the, the 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 Newfoundland outpost, or would this have been something much more narrowly known? Right. So um, it depends on how seriously we take the saga's version of history. In the saga's version of history, in at least one of the sagas, the king of Norway, who at the time is Olaf Tryggvason, is directly involved with this expedition. And so the knowledge in Norway, you would expect, would be quite good, because this is only about 
50, 50 to 60 years before the heyday of, of Harold Hadrada. But that's assuming that that saga is accurate. And that's, again, that's always kind of a dicey proposition. It's likely that it was pretty widely known because the lumber would have been sold. Right? You need a market for this. A lot of it's being brought back to Greenland and Iceland, but even then it's being sold. Right? It's not being given out as a gift. And so um, the fact that there's now competition for the Norwegian lumber that has had a monopoly on the market for years, almost certainly that would be known, right? Because that would be uh, uh, an economic sort of uh, uh, tremor that people would be aware of. Uh, but in terms of how much they know about the details, could a, a group outfitted by the King of Norway actually find Lansa Meadow? Probably not. Uh, it's it's not likely they would have had that kind of detail. You'd almost need to have someone on the ship who'd already been there to help you find it. So last question about Lonson Meadow. Before yeah. Then we venture into more dubious waters here. <laughs> uh, so when and why do the Norse leave or stop coming rather to Lonson Meadow? Uh, well, okay. So there's, there's a multi-part answer to that. I mean, the, the one that I like to give because you know it's well because it's my my sort of half joking answer is that unlike later europeans they realized they weren't wanted they they sort of caught on it became more and more uh risky because there are both the sagas report sort of growing incidences of violence uh between the two groups and it becomes clear that it's not sort of secure and safe and they really don't bring a security force with them right they really aren't there to fight and so eventually they sort of, they step away from it. Now that doesn't mean that they stop coming to North America for lumber. It means they stop using that site. Uh, it's possible that they are finding other places where they are not running into indigenous people. And again, are, are not staying permanently, but are uh, cutting down wood, curing that wood to some degree, throwing it on their ships and going. There's some evidence, there's a, a reference in the 12th, 13th century, I'm, I'm not going to remember offhand the exact year, in a chronicle to uh, an ongoing kind of lumber concern that's going across the Atlantic, gaining lumber and coming back. So the actual Lanza Meadows site appears to have been used for about 20 years on and off, but okay. the knowledge is not lost. And so even when that site is abandoned, um, it's it's very likely that people are still making periodic trips to uh, to take advantage of the forests of North America. Okay. And so roughly when do they abandon this site, as far as we know? Um, see, this is one of those moments when medievalists get to do current events, because uh, just in the last few weeks, uh, there's been some carbon dating done that has uh, pushed the date a little bit later than we thought. It's It's usually been tied because the sagas tell us that Olaf Tryggvason is involved in the expeditions. Olaf Tryggvason is king of, of uh, Norway for only five years, from 995 to 1000. And so that was always kind of a very easy place to peg it. The problem is that the the carbon dating of material from the site tells us that it's more like 1015 to 1020. And so whether that, that- Carbon dating is that specific. Yes, because of a number, there's a number of um, events, both uh, uh, astral, astrological events uh, uh, and then also astronomical, excuse me, uh, events, uh, sort of meteorological events, and then things like volcanoes and so forth, right? There are strata that they can look at. 
Uh, and there's a one of the strata they can look at is is conveniently able to place the dating of this site. But does that reflect then the beginning and end of the site, or is that 1020 date the start now and we have to push from there? So the sloppy answer is early 11th century. Okay. Uh, but we're 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 still waiting for uh, a final decision about a more specific date. And then climatologically, the mm -hmm. medieval warming period would have made Newfoundland a somewhat more temperate, friendly place to be. Very much uh, so. Compared to, say, like, you know, the, the early modern, the colonial period. Absolutely. Um, it's the, uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, the, the warming period in the high middle ages uh, dates from about 950 or 1000 to about 1300. And in that period, uh, you can grow grapes in Southern England, Greenland, which, um, you know, people always make jokes about Greenland being named for as a PR stunt. Uh, it actually was fairly green in the year 1000. Um, it was, it was significantly warmer. It had an actual growing season. Um, the 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 harbors were not choked with ice all year. It was a very different time, right? And the world looked different. Uh, and so, absolutely, the, the forest of Newfoundland would have been uh, even more abundant with food, with fruit, with plants than it is now. And it's still, by the way, <laughs> uh, I've been to Lanza Meadow, and I can't speak for what was there a thousand years ago, of course. But even now, if you go hiking around the site of Lanza Meadow, you can just draw your hand through the ground brush and come up with handfuls of berries. Uh, it's a, a an extremely fertile site. Uh, and so it's it's not hard to imagine that they would have gotten there and felt they'd found a kind of paradise. This is why they called it Vinland, right? Well, uh, that's <laughs> now getting into the weird myth stuff. Well, this is getting into why people were looking for Vikings in New England. Uh, so we might as well make yeah. that make that turn. Let's do it. Uh, so the name Vinland is uh, a problem. Right? Uh, for a long time, it, it was assumed, and I think many people still believe that it refers to vines. Uh, that that these are grapevines because we do have the story about Turkey the German who builds himself a, a little still out in the forest and is making his own booze. The, the problem is, what he says is, I'm German and my people have always known how to make this kind of wine. Uh, so was he using grapes to make wine? Right? That's, that's long been the assumption. Uh, and so people were looking for uh, the settlement in places where grapes grow in North America which is significantly farther south than uh, northern Newfoundland. Uh, the couple of problems with that. One is that American grapes are terrible. Uh, uh, fox grapes, the American wild grapes, do not make good wine, do not make palatable wine. Uh, the grapes that we now grow in America to make wine, and we make very good wine in America now, but those are all hybridized with European vines. Oh, the, okay. The local, the local vines are not... Birds will eat them, but human beings don't want any part of them. Um, but, of course, the other problem there is that assuming that when Turkey says he's making wine, that that means he's using grapes, that's a very kind of Central European assumption about what wine is. Wine can be made from anything. Wine can be made from any kind of berry. Um, Scandinavians make dandelion wine. 
um, that you can make a wine out of really anything that has a sweet juice. And so it's very likely that to the degree that this is an historical anecdote, that he's referring to making berry wine rather than grape wine. Because berries, of course, as your listeners will know, grow wild all up and down the northeast of North America. Right. Uh, and so really what kind of wine you can make just determined by where you landed. Humans are also really ingenious at fermenting all kinds of stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> finding ways to get intoxicated. Absolutely. Geniuses of our species. Uh, it's You know, uh, hey, we share it with the elephants. Uh, but it is something that uh, the... Wait, elephants get drunk on stuff? Yes. Elephants, uh, there's evidence that ele elephants will cache away fruit and wait for it to ferment. And will then return to it and uh, consume it. Wow. And will then and will then deliberately get drunk. That uh we're not the only species that gets drunk for pleasure. I need there to be some sort of National Geographic show <laughs> about like elephants gone wild when like right. cameras on these. So by the way, I, I I read that a while back in an article. And if it turns out that it's not true, by the way, nobody tell me. Okay. I, I need Fair. this. Yes. Yeah. I need this <laughs> is the best thing. Yeah, exactly right. I need this. Um, yeah. So the best berry wine I ever had was strawberry wine in mm. Michigan. Um, I, there are some snobs who are like, no, no, only grape wine is real wine. I no, no. call BS on that. That yeah. strawberry wine was delicious. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, obviously, North Northern Europeans knew how to make honey wine, right? I mean, that's what mead is. Uh, but uh, I've had blueberry wine that is excellent. Um, I... I mean, briefly in in uh, my teenage years, uh, experimented with making backyard wine while working as a counselor in a summer camp. Uh, it worked out pretty well, but I, it was illegal, so I won't go into the details. Of course, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, nice. yeah, berry, berry wine is relatively easy to make, requires relatively little expertise and relatively little time. And so it's it's it would be a very likely go-to for people in a strange place who didn't bring enough alcohol with them or any alcohol with them, but are really hankering for a drink. Thinking of impeded judgment, let's mm -hmm. now segue to, so if the Vikings, sorry, the Norse almost certainly did not go, uh, if we don't have a lot of good evidence that they went far beyond what's now Newfoundland, uh, when do people start making these claims mm -hmm. that what's now New England was uh, was the subject of frequent visits by the Norse. Right. Well, so that's, yeah. So the key there is, as you said, a lack of good evidence. There's a lot of bad evidence. Mm. And people were uh, industrious in finding ways to interpret the bad evidence. I, I want to say at the outset, there is no proof that Vikings did not come to New England. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, I mean, there's no evidence that the ghost seal didn't come. Exactly, either, exactly. So that's not you, a fair... Proving a negative, right, doesn't really work. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about is the evidence that people have in the past relied on that really doesn't stand up. Uh, and I think it tells us a lot more about uh, attitudes in the 19th century in New England uh, than it does about the, the activities of Norwegians and Icelanders and Greenlanders in the 11th century. That, by the way, is the period, right? The the 19th century is really the heyday for this this belief, this this push. 
all up and down uh, New England, because as people become aware of the sagas, the sagas are being translated into English in the 19th century. Uh, a handful of them were available before that, but several of them become available for the first time. And the Victorians, you know, part of that dichotomy of the Victorians, right there, they were a very, uh, we think of them as a very buttoned down conservative people, but they also really loved a good sort of bloody adventure story. Yeah, um, and they love, it's the romantic era. And so what's more- yes romantic than the norse sailing mm -hmm. and battling the elephant the elephants sorry, the elements <laughs> also the good ele battling those drunken elements absolutely uh, battling <laughs> the elements and um there's that nostalgia for all things medieval for those mm -hmm. folks who maybe mm -hmm. are not as as invested in these literary cycles as, as john and i but uh, yeah the long story short in the 1800s europeans and euro-americans get really nostalgic for the middle mm -hmm. ages supposedly more primal and natural and that kind of thing right well and you know if you if, if listeners are familiar with uh, the new england coast at all which i'm sure most of, of them are you'll probably know of at least one castle uh the 19th century and the early 20th century uh new englanders were building castles everywhere it was part of that push part of that that casting around right for a more a uh, Germanic, a more Northern European, a more white origin to the American story. And, and that's part of the key, is that a lot of this early interest comes from wanting to find a more uh, Anglo-Saxon or Germanic Protestant past to the discovery of the New World. And it's in, we should add, it's in the 19th century that even the term Anglo-Saxon gets really commonly invoked to describe white people who speak English. Like, right. That, that wasn't really, uh, that wasn't really a term that gets used before the American revolution by anybody except a few really obscure, you know, mm -hmm. kind of language nerds, but like, you know, it, you won't have some, I don't know, some like random railroad executive talk <laughs> about something like, Oh yes. Well, you know, we need mm -hmm. the good Anglo-Saxon Protestants to to do such and such a thing. Like, no, right. You know. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, what Anglo-Saxon means undergoes a real transformation in that period. Prior to that, it refers to two uh, historical groups who migrated to the island of England in the fifth century. And really beyond that, didn't have a lot of meaning. Uh, and in the 19th century, absolutely, as you say, it's it's repurposed to create a kind of link to a romanticized past that never really existed. I mean, England was always highly multicultural, highly uh, influenced by waves of immigration and never really reflected a monocultural heritage. But in the 19th century, essentially we invented one. We did that by erasing a lot of the past, by ignoring a lot of both literature and art that tells us that people of all colors and all religions were present, were coexisting on the British Isles throughout the Middle Ages. Um, the um, In Scandinavia as well, right? we have scattered references to people with darker skin among the Vikings. Uh, certainly in places like the Hebrides and Ireland, there's evidence that people were uh, settling there from uh, Southern Europe and Northern Africa. One of my favorite anecdotes is uh, the two men who were sent to England in the seventh century to enforce Roman orthodoxy. Uh, one is from what we now call Syria, and one is from Ethiopia. 
and neither neither of them is ever referred to by skin color or by nation of origin anywhere in the anglo-saxon chronicles it's a it's a place that's very familiar with uh cultural diversity in a way that we don't think of it as being yeah and i think that's it's good to add in here that that sort of attaching these ideas of race to these kind of physical differences was not really present before the early modern period in a sustained way. And like, this is, this is, you know, this could be the subject of an entire other podcast and <laughs> books and all the rest, but you know, to me, right. I know there are, there are some medieval scholars who are interested in studying racialization. And so I know they don't all agree on everything, but the sort of the, the basic short answer is like before Spain in the the sort of Reconquista era, era. it's mm -hmm. not that everybody holds hands and gets along, but just that, yes, those sort of uh, some of those physical differences that are now tracked with and coded with what we now call race, that wouldn't have right. meant anything to those people. In right. And lest people think we're whitewashing the Middle Ages too much, uh, the poor choice of phrase, uh, religious bigotry was alive and well. Right. Oh, and that's yeah, yeah. Uh, Again. and yeah. in fact, in many ways, we can trace the origin of uh, racial essentializing based on physical features to anti-Semitism uh, yes. in the high Middle Ages. And so uh, certainly there's you know, there's a complicated past at work here. Yes. But the 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 19th century New Englanders who were trying to prove a Viking origin, they were essentially trying to uh, bypass all of that to access a past that had never really existed, but that increasingly in the 19th century was giving shape to uh, a variety of kind of historizations of the past that would eventually also give rise to things like eugenics and give rise to things like Arianism uh, and a lot of kind of the really sort of toxic stuff that ends up happening early 20th century finds its origin in these same impulses. Yes. Yeah, I remember it was the, um, there's one of the, the sort of great quotation marks works of, of sort of race science that inspired uh, Hitler and others in, in Germany was Houston Stuart Chamberlain's Foundations of the 19th Century, mm. which he somehow managed to do a swivel that some sort of Brits and others like them, where the real cradles of civilization were the sort of Germanic peoples who brought mm -hmm. down the Roman Empire mm -hmm. and somehow somehow it was the roman empire's fault because it became like racially mixed or something but i don't know but so a lot of that you know bottling all that stuff and sort of rooting whatever was most great and primal and good into some idealized version of what these kind of germanic tribes people were doing two thousand years ago right um, you know and, and that's all percolating when people are building castles as well right oh uh, and to be clear, there were also people who honestly did believe this stuff. Right? I mean, it's it's not just that these were sort of uh, people with a political agenda or a, a right. cultural agenda. Uh, there were people who sincerely believed in it uh, because they did read the sagas, right? They did know about these these visits to the New World, and they didn't necessarily know that the Vikings were living farther north because of the whole Vinland thing. And so you do also have people who are motivated by a sincere... Uh, interest in locating the Viking settlements and the Vikings uh, are cool and so, and the Vikings are cool like it's understandable to say to to like being able to attach something interesting happening in your neighborhood you know, of no, course nobody likes to believe 
from their perspective that like, well, none of that cool stuff happened here. Right. And of course, and that's exactly right. So when we start to think about how this becomes a phenomenon up and down the New England coast, that's exactly what it is, right? It's it's local legends, local beliefs. So to give one example, um, in in uh, Penobscot Bay, uh, Kearney Island, right? Um, there's a long-standing local legend about a Viking shipwreck on the island, uh, and a Viking grave hidden somewhere on the island. Not a shred of historical evidence. Nobody's ever found okay. the the bits and pieces of a ship or anything, right? But that legend has been there for a very long time. Now. There is a story in the sagas about one of the Eriksons, Thorvald Eriksson, being killed in battle with the Skrellings and being and asking to be buried nearby, not to be brought back to um, to Greenland, but to be buried right there in North America uh, at a place that he calls Crossiness. And so people up and down the coast have been trying to find well, not really trying to find Thorvald's grave, because that's not really what they're after, trying to find enough of a connection to that to be able to claim that Thorvald was buried there and therefore that their town is lots is Vinland. Uh, uh, okay. So Kearney Island is one of the places that makes that claim. Uh, you also find that claim in Cape Ann, Massachusetts, uh, where if you go to Cape Ann, you'll find um, a couple of, a couple of streets named after Thorvald Erickson and then also the Thorvald hotel. Uh, in in New Hampshire, uh, in Hampton, there's a place called Thorvald's Rock. Again, supposedly the gravestone of Thorvald Erickson. I can I live in southeastern Massachusetts, and within an hour, I can be at at least seven towns that have all claimed to be the resting place of Thorvald Erickson. Dighton, Duxbury, uh, Norton, Boston, Dennis, Cape Ann. Uh, it's it's remarkable with the number of places up and down from from northern Maine down through Massachusetts that have laid claim to this exact same sort of set of circumstances without really having any evidence anywhere up and down the coast. Now, there's a number of structures in New England that locals want to uh, attribute to mm -hmm. you know, the Norse of some kind. And, you know, for being uncharitable, sometimes this is like a, an aliens building the pyramids kind of a thing. <laughs> uh, for being more charitable, it's not. And uh, one of the more famous ones is Norumbega. <laughs> yes. Could you talk a bit about this one? This is probably like the most, you know, the, the most substantial of these uh, right. connections to the, the fictional uh, Norse visits. Right. Uh, so Norumbega Tower is, um, the, the issue is that on one of those early maps that I mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation, there is the word Norumbega. Um, it's just sort of written on the side of coming off the land. And it, it refers to nothing in particular. It doesn't point to any particular spot on the map. And of course, that map itself is not actually topographical, right? It's it's more kind of imaginative. That does not stop people from trying to find Norumbega. And at least one fairly remarkable man found it. And you can't see the air quotes, but believe me, they're there. Uh, <laughs> the man is Eben Horsford. Uh, and if folks are familiar with him at all, it's probably because he was a uh, baking powder magnate. Um, he developed a process for keeping uh, baking powder and baking soda from caking, uh, so, which legitimately was transformative for home cooking in the 19th century. If you've ever had a Rumsford baking powder, the red and black canister, 
Uh, that's his brand. That's the brand that he started. Eben Horsford uh, used his riches, and he was a millionaire at a time when being a millionaire really meant something. And he used those riches in his single-minded pursuit of uncovering the location of Norumbega. He eventually determined, he looked at various locations up and down the coast, uh, and conveniently, he eventually discovered that, in fact, uh, Leif Erikson had lived in his front yard. Oh, uh, that's convenient. Wasn't it? Uh, Eben happened to live uh, on on the Charles River uh, in Boston. And uh, it was very convenient because it meant that he could do his archaeology without getting out of his house slippers. Uh, this reminds me of the, as they say, uh, looking for Vikings, kind of like the drunk who's lost, who's searching for their keys uh-huh. uh, under the light of the street lamp. Right. That's where they can see. <laughs> right. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so Eben, although in this case, Eben... While that one particular thing may be a little strange, uh, Eben was convinced that um, the the descriptions in the sagas corresponded to the mouth of the Charles River. Uh, and so he pushed this, uh, and there were a number of other things. It's, again, sort of evidence everywhere from um, sort of Algonquit all the way down through to uh, Cape Cod uh, that that well, all these people are claiming the Vikings have been here, right? There can't be that much smoke without a fire. So uh, Boston is sort of, you know, nicely in the middle of that area. Why not? Uh, right. And so saying. he he puts together a uh, a group of men. And these, I mean, this is a sort of 19th century American intelligentsia Avengers, really. Um, <laughs> his, his group includes Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, James Russell Lowell, uh, John Greenleaf Whittier, uh, Henry Longfellow, uh, Alexander Rice, who's the governor of Massachusetts at the time. Uh, these men are all part of this push uh, to discover Norumbega. They each pursue it in their own way. Henry Longfellow writes a book of poetry called The Skeleton in Armor uh, about a, uh, a burial that was discovered in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1831 of a skeleton wearing what was described as armor. Unfortunately, that skeleton and its artifacts were destroyed in a museum fire in 1843. And so we can't now look at it or carbon date it or anything like that. But contemporary accounts are enough to tell modern archaeologists that we're probably looking at an indigenous burial. But in the 19th century, this was clearly a Viking. And so Longfellow writes an epic poem that the conceit of which is that he is taking dictation from the embodied spirit of this dead Viking. Oh. The, the frontispiece is a portrait of Longfellow feverishly taking dictation while a skeletal figure in Viking armor speaks to him. So it's all part of this PR campaign that this group of men is conducting to make a case for the greater Boston area as being sort of the the center of Viking activity. Horsford puts money into multiple sort of public works in pursuit of this. One is a plaque in his front yard saying that this is where Leif Erikson lived. One is a large statue of Leif Erikson, which he has commissioned along with these other men. Rice is going to have the tax uh, taxes of Massachusetts pay for it. And Massachusetts, to their eternal credit, responded with, is there any actual evidence for any of this? <laughs> uh, 
At which point, Horsford simply paid for the statue himself. He had it erected uh, at the end of Commonwealth Avenue. And so um, if next time you're in Boston, folks, if you'd like to go to the end of Commonwealth Avenue, you will find a very large and very Victorian statue of Leif Erikson uh, right there in the middle of, Massachusetts, of, of Boston. Uh, I love that the efforts so far of all these minds is, all right, well, we got we to gotta prove the Vikings were here. All right. You write a poem. <laughs> um, I'll build a statue. Right. Right. It's we all, all we all do what we know how to do. Yeah, it's all it's all coming together. It's Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Uh, and that statue of Leaf, by the way, looks toward Norumbega Tower. So we started off by talking about Norumbega. Uh, Norumbega Tower is a thing. Um, it is in uh, on the Norton Western border. You can go and look at it. You should not climb it, which I did not know, by the way, when I visited it. So uh, my podcast partner and I did, in fact, climb it because the door was open. And it's actually badly crumbling concrete about 40 feet high. It's a really bad idea to climb it. But okay. yeah, so don't do not do that. Uh, but you can go and look at it. And it's got a plaque on it that says that this site, Norumbega, uh, was at one point the home of 10,000 Vikings. For the record... This is another thing that Horsford paid to have erected, right? There's no evidence for any of it. Uh, there was a, uh, a an archaeological site pretty nearby there. But again, subsequent research has shown that's almost certainly an early colonial homestead. But for Horsford, this was enough evidence. And so he built Norumbega Tower, and it, it still stands because apparently, I mean, you know, New Englanders, we like tradition. And so once you've got a tower like that, there's no reason to tear it down. It's just part of the past. It's part of the story. But Horsford spent his much of his fortune, really almost all of his fortune, on these pursuits. And all of these other men, right? People who we respect as the the intel the intellectual elite of the late 19th century in, in New England were all part of this effort. We're all part of this push to locate Norumbega and locate the Vikings here in Massachusetts or uh in in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Maine, right along the coast. I just love that. Um, and this is this is my cynical side, uh, you know, but mm -hmm. it's the when people are like, no, honestly, you should trust that your forebears knew what they were doing when they passed <laughs> certain laws. It's like they passed this law that's stupid in between looking for Vikings. Right. And... In between putting up concrete towers to imaginary Viking cities. Yeah, we should we should point out. And uh, there is another there's a Norumbega castle in knox county uh Maine, oh yes camden yes um, and it's not it doesn't look remotely viking but um the, joseph barker stearns uh, mm -hmm. was this uh he was heavily involved in uh innovation and telegraphs uh he just you know his homage to all the norumbega things is he bought this he, he built this castle and he commissioned it nice uh, but he at least you know uh, I don't think he, he wasn't doing as much Viking cosplaying as such, but it was mm -hmm. definitely part of the, the mania that you speak of. So people can still visit it. It's on the uh, it's on the National Register of Historic Places. So Camden, Maine. Well, and if we're looking at Maine specifically, we should also talk about what's called the Maine Penny. Are you familiar with this? I am not. Uh, it's sometimes also called the, the Goddard coin. Uh, so this is uh, back in 1957. Uh, an amateur archaeologist found a coin in an archaeological dig in Penobscot Bay. Uh, 
It was a, a fairly big deal at the time for obvious reasons. Remember, this is 1957. The Longhouse site at Lonson Meadow actually wasn't identified until 1960. So this is still the period people are looking for the Vinland settlement anywhere along the New England coast. Um, the dig site wasn't actually looking for Viking finds. It was actually a 13th century Native American site. Uh, and there was at first there was a misidentification of the coin as being a British penny. But it was actually a silver coin from Norway, from the reign of Olaf the Peaceful in the mid to late 11th century. This is a real coin, right? So, cool. all right, we've got something. Right? People got yeah. very excited about this coin for obvious reasons. Right? At the time, this puts Penobscot in the running as the site of the Viking settlement. And honestly, in 1957, puts it sort of at the front of the running. Uh, and of course, it's important to remember there could be more than one settlement, right? It could be a site of a Viking settlement, even if it's not the main one. Uh, the, but it also, uh, that is true. Mm -hmm. But as many scholars would point out, and I'm sure you, you know, not that you disagree with them, also the indigenous people on the Eastern seaboard, like their neighbors across the continent, had a vibrant and extensive trade network. Absolutely. So the existence of some artifact anywhere uh, yeah, it might mean somebody brought it there directly, mm -hmm. you know, from overseas, but it also could just mean that like, yep, this had, this was an object of either ritual significance or just novelty and curiosity, right. humans being what they are. Well, so, yep. you know, like we found jade that's, you know, traded all across the continent, mm -hmm. copper from the Great Lakes has been found all over the place across the continent. So it doesn't take much of a stretch of an imagination to have these Viking coins go everywhere. Right. And and absolutely. And you've already anticipated where I'm going with this because uh the very the strongest possibility, um, apart from the strongest possibility, which is that this coin was planted there, uh, but is that it was in fact uh moved up and down the coast by indigenous peoples for possibly centuries. Uh the People have been arguing about this coin really through to today. Uh, it's still, by the way, in the Maine State Museum. Uh, it's on display, uh, and the Maine State Museum still has a placard there explaining that it is most likely evidence of Viking activity in Maine. There's a lot that goes into why you would want to encourage that belief, or at least the 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 romantic possibility of that truth. But uh, there's a few problems with the, the coin. Uh, the main one is... There's almost no site record of the circumstances of the coin when it was found. Uh, archaeologists are usually pretty careful about recording the site as they recover and remove artifacts for exactly the reason that you, later on you need to prove that it was actually found in situ. But this particular site wasn't well recorded. The archaeologist involved was an amateur. Uh, not to say that amateurs can't be very, very skilled, but in this case, the records weren't well kept. Also, we know that uh, a number of coins from a separate find uh, in Europe, a number of coins from Olaf's reign were available commercially on the numismatist market in the 1950s. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the coin is legitimately an 11th century coin, but coins from Olaf's reign, Olaf reigned for quite a long time, for more than 30 years. And so he printed quite a few coins over the course of his, his reign. And they do get found periodically, and there were some available commercially in the 1950s. Uh, so unfortunately, the majority opinion is that this was probably uh, brought to the site uh, in the 20th century and then, quote unquote, discovered. But let's also look at the possibility that you brought up. Right? Um, we know Vikings are in North America because 
we have found a Viking settlement at Lonson Meadow. Now that's several hundred miles away from Penobscot, but as you said, trade is robust up and down the coast, right? These these are people who are traveling, who are trading, uh, who might take a coin like this uh, that originally had been gained through trade and uh, used as a decoration, as an ornament. The main penny has appears to have had a whole board through it, uh, possibly to be worn as an amulet. Yeah, that would make sense. Like, that does bolster the case. Mm -hmm. like, I, Absolutely. I don't know how various, <laughs> for all I know, Norse also did that just for storage. But, uh, you know, uh, hard mm -hmm. currency being rare. Mm -hmm. But definitely there's lots of evidence of that among Algonquin folks. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just it, is that this is this is this fits so well with what we know of how um the indigenous peoples would wear ornament and how they would treat something like this, that it's it's a very real possibility. Again, the majority view is that this is one more uh example in the long and proud tradition of New England examples of people trying to find evidence to fit their beliefs. Yes. It's and... something that we're very good at. Yes. And just to sort of put the, the final flourish on the, the indigenous connectivity, I mean, mm -hmm. stuff that we know for sure that's really easy to, to prove. I mean, uh, when the French and the English arrive in the in the later 1500s, you know, uh, more regularly, there is already uh, like very robust and regular kind of political rivalries and connections all mm -hmm. the way from you know, up and around past Nova Scotia down to, to Cape Cod. One of the sort of rivalries that the the Plymouth colonists had to be aware of was that the the Micmac up of, you know, around Nova Scotia uh, and, and closer to Newfoundland, quite honestly, uh, had a big confederacy that was in this rivalry and engaging in, you know, major battles in what's now like, you know, basically Algonquit, you know, and like the, the York Maine area. And so, and then the people all the way up and around to Cape Cod were aware of all this stuff. So thinking that like, this was no big deal to them then, I mean, that that gives you a sense of just what was in the sort of fairly close in even political orbit. So it's right. like, you have to go, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon to get from <laughs> Newfoundland, right, to, to Penobscot Bay. Right. Right. Like that's not that not actually that much of a jump in terms of, of how many how many middle people you even had to have. Absolutely right. Right. Really. And when you add in the fact that we're talking about potentially since this was a 13th century site, potentially as much as 250 to 300 years yeah. in between the coin arriving and the coin ending up in situ, there's obviously ample time for the coin to travel much, much farther than that. Yes. Yes. But, um, you know, that reminds me, though, of uh, there's this joke from this writ comedian about uh, Loch, Loch Ness Monster. And he says, I don't know anything about zoology, cryptozoology, biology, archaeology, dendrochronology or anything else. And I know people say that there's no way that uh, there's the Loch Ness Monster is real. But what if a dinosaur got in the lake? you know and like, <laughs> yeah that's kind of where i go sometimes with the viking things where that's kind of what some people are doing and they go mm -hmm. what if a dinosaur got in the lake you right know? 
Right. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, again, because you can't prove a negative, right, it's it's always going to be kind of fertile ground for speculation. Uh, and there is just enough evidence that is just ambiguous enough that people have been able to feed off of this now for 150 years or more. And it's not likely to stop anytime soon, right? I mean, um, uh, I'm going to a talk in a couple of weeks uh, discussing the likelihood that uh, the Vikings made their way to Dighton, Massachusetts, which, by the way, they almost certainly did not. Ah, yes. <sighs> I, I for one, do not relish being a, just basically a, a debunker all the time, you know? Yeah, no. You know, I spend a lot of time telling uh, telling descendants of the Mayflower that, like, no, your ancestors didn't call themselves pilgrims. Mm -hmm. No, they weren't nearly as important as you thought they were. <laughs> uh, no, that doesn't make them boring. They're actually far more interesting than mm -hmm. the people you think they were. But no, no, no. You know. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, yeah, I not only do I not relish the role of debunker uh i often think that this is uh something that we as scholars uh we're likely to err on the side of right? mm. uh, as we said at the beginning of this conversation uh the past is stories uh it's certainly there's evidence that some stories are grounded in reality and some stories are grounded in the imagination and that is something that we should always have one eye on and we should always pay attention to uh but for most of human history, history has been story. And how we how we interpret our past and how we perceive ourselves in light of that past has always been a result of the stories we tell ourselves about the past. Uh, the fact that it may not correspond to reality doesn't make the story less powerful. And I think point. there's a whole area to be covered here, a whole sort of field uh, of study that doesn't get much attention about how those stories of the past shape us as much as the actual past shapes us. Yeah. I mean, that is the, the sort of an analogy or connection to closer to home for me is, you know, there's a whole, uh, most professional historians aren't that interested in the historic encounter that the so-called first Thanksgiving Mm. But we're very interested in how this small band of oddballs eventually got <laughs> repurposed into the pilgrims. And sure. The sort of uh, Thanksgiving industrial complex that was created. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a separate issue. Um, and of course, you can be interested in both the making of those myths and the, the people themselves without just getting mired in, in counter programming. I mean, right. Me, uh, my approach is this sort of. I would, for me, the real Norse are way more interesting than the mythological ones. Mm -hmm. And rather than, you know, my approach would be, and I'm, I suspect you agree, but I'm, I'm curious yours. My approach is less sort of to run around telling people, this is why you're wrong and more about this is what the actual historic Norse were doing. And isn't <laughs> that really cool? And yes, yeah. this is why we know they didn't, in fact, you know, build a castle in Dighton or wherever else. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, instead of this is why you're wrong here, wouldn't you want to learn about these real people and the cool stuff they did? Uh, and then you'll sort of incidentally also be learning why we, we're, we're pretty sure they, they probably did not found Duluth, Minnesota or whatever else you think. that they're <laughs> doing. 
Absolutely. Uh, I One of the things that uh, I like to talk about when it comes to uh, what the Vikings are and aren't up to in North America is to think about why they wouldn't have built a castle, for example, right? why they wouldn't have built a, a massive sort of uh, mead hall, the way their sagas describe. Uh, because if you take a people and you put them in a place that has a specific climate, a specific set of tools available to you, uh, you're going to come up with a solution that roughly fits your environment. And this, the environment they found themselves in in North America was an environment that required uh, indoor heating. Uh, and so smaller buildings are going to make more sense. Uh, they're going to uh, be very temporary shelters. You're not going to be doing things like uh, shaping stone for cre creating a building like this. What you're going to end up with is a long, low, sort of curved house uh, that will that will uh, uh, conserve heat uh, while letting smoke escape. And it's going to look a lot like a Native American wetu. Yes. Uh, right. That, that it sense. turns out that when you put human beings in an environment, give them the same tools, the same resources, the same needs, they're going to come up with very similar solutions. And that to me is much cooler than sort of imaginary castles is that when the the Norse and the Native Americans met each other, they actually had a lot in common. Yes. And that is, uh, I mean, that's something that I think modern folks often don't appreciate as much as how much before the Industrial Revolution, pre-industrialized peoples really had a lot in common with each other mm -hmm. than with us. Uh, and yes. we don't have to, that doesn't mean they were all living these extremely basic, materially impoverished existences or something like that, or that they didn't have culture and fashion and all the rest. Of course they did. But materially, it was just a very different world mm -hmm. in, in terms of energy production and these basic concerns. And they all would have, you know, the idea that like, you know, Native Americans were so much more focused on the natural world. It's like, well, yes, so was everybody else in right. before the industrial era because you had to be. Because mm -hmm. most people farm for a living and, you know, all the rest of that stuff. And so, right. you know, caring about plants or something wasn't a hobby. It was most people's lives, uh, full stop, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that um, if you go to Lonson Meadow, which, by the way, it's it's quite out of the way, but I strongly recommend people give it a shot at some point. If you're if you're already in Maine, you're 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 not that far away from Newfoundland. It's worth a try. Uh, but when you go there, uh, what they talk about is when those people met, when the people from Scandinavia and the people from North America met on that on the coast, whether that first meeting happened in Boston or Penobscot or Newfoundland or wherever it happened. That marks the conclusion of mankind's sort of encircling of the globe. The people we know historically, right? We we came up from Africa and moved out across Asia and Europe. Those peoples made their way around the earth. And at some point around the 11th century, somewhere near here, those two groups met again. And as you say, they actually still had a great deal in common with each other because their concerns were the concerns of people. Um, and they, since they were living in the same time and they were experiencing the same place, they were experiencing things much more similarly 
than we can imagine if we were in that time and place. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, lest I, I want to end on that majestic moment, <laughs> except also wondering, do we have any evidence if any of the Norse and any of the, uh, the people that they met, if any of them had a kid, then it's like the human family tree <laughs> coming full circle. Right. Well, that's actually, um, that's very interesting. One, yes, we have reasonably secure evidence that a European child was born in the settlement. Uh, his name is Snorri. Uh, Snorri, nice. Snorri, uh, Snorri Thorfinson. Um, and he travels back to Iceland and eventually uh, settles down with his mother uh, in Iceland and helps to build one of the first uh, large churches there in the 11th century. Uh, so Snorri is actually, you know, a reasonably secure historical figure. Oh, sorry. Um, I mean that they had a kid with right, the locals. Right. That's that's where I'm heading with this. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so that's the that's the one we know about. Right? And then there's also the reference that I made earlier that um, that Freydis, uh, Eric's daughter, was eight months pregnant and therefore presumably gave birth before returning to to uh, Greenland. But whether they brought back anyone else. Uh, that's been a hotly debated topic. Uh, there is some genetic evidence of, uh, it's called the uh, the haplogroup C1E, uh, is a, a specific set of sort of DNA uh, that some few Icelanders carry, which is traceable to the settlement of the Americas. Oh, uh, so you're talking about going back 10 to 15,000 years for this. So the development of this group and that hints that a small proportion of Icelanders have some Native American ancestry. We don't have any we don't have any historical documents showing that anyone that any uh, of the Skrælings came back to Greenland or Iceland. But there certainly seems to have been enough fraternization that. Uh, the DNA carries on in modern Iceland, and and or maybe uh, a couple of the Norse stayed in with the the Skrullings. Entirely possible. Uh, we have a different saga, Erbicha saga, in which uh, a character uh, Bjorn uh, at the end of the saga is said to live in a land far across the ocean, somewhere off the coast of Ireland. Which, you know, <laughs> uh, but the people he lives with do not speak uh, a Scandinavian language are shorter, darker skinned, all have black hair, uh, and Bjorn is living among them. Uh, and whether that reflects a uh, an indigenous population in the Greenland area, in uh, in North America, who knows? Uh, but there's, there's these sort of, just these hints. Uh, but the DNA suggests that the hints have some basis. I like to think that Snorri uh, made friends among the locals before he <laughs> went back to build that church. Well, I mean, Story was still a baby when he went home, but <laughs> oh, okay. um, he could have had a playmate. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so we know, I suppose the real evidence, if uh, if somebody finds a true Viking castle here, <laughs> is if there is a ghost seal that is mm -hmm. creeping up through those floorboards. So if you see Absolutely. the ghost seal, that's right. when you should reach out. Right. If you're if you're out ice fishing this winter. <laughs> yes. And there's um, a ghost seal coming to right. the floor. If, if a ghost seal pops up at any point, uh, then, you know, get a picture, uh, send it to me. Uh, I'll give it to Andy because Andy loves the ghost seal. Okay. Uh, and we'll we'll take it from there. 
<laughs> I like this. Um, and it it isn't the hint that it looks very melancholy. Yes. From yes. the sagas. Okay. Right. So if you see a slightly depressed looking seal okay. uh, that can go through walls, uh, that's the one we're looking for. So if it's jovial, not interested, not interested. Right. That's probably, that's most likely going to be a fuya, a, a, a spirit that is looking to mess with the luck of the person who sees it. Oh, well, that's yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to mess with that one. You want the, you want us to look only for the melancholy seals, only the melancholy seals. <laughs> oh, if you, if you meet it, I think we should name it snoring. Great. Uh, I'm honor. sure he'd be he'd be most honored. Yes, in honor, in honor of the first Norse Newfoundland baby. Uh so so people can find your podcast saga mm-hmm. thing. Anywhere yep. fine podcasts are 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 findable. Yep. Wherever you, wherever you go about uh harvesting those, I'm not really sure. Excellent. Okay. And then uh are there any if you could recommend one book? If somebody's saying, you know what, I want to learn, I want to learn more things Norse, I want to get a good primer, a good taster, Mm -hmm. um, what might you recommend? Uh, Well, if you're looking for uh, the primary text, I mean, the literature, read a saga, read any saga. They're, they're all good. Okay. (laughs) And nobody reads them. Uh, uh, But they're all, most of them are available in translation pretty readily at this point. And I mean, read, uh, if you want a nice short one, read Gisli's Saga. Gizli's uh, saga. Okay. Gizli saga. Uh the saga of Gizli, the son of uh Way. Uh meaning uh the way that comes from milk. His father uh at one point douses himself in uh curdled milk to escape from a burning farmhouse. They're those kind of stories. I like uh, them. if you're looking for that is most uh connected to uh the Newfoundland. Right, so that would be uh, then you'd want either the saga of Eric the Red, or the Greenlanders saga. Okay. Of the two, I would recommend Eric the Red saga. It's uh, it's the more sort of interesting one anecdotally. Right, it tells better stories. Fair, fair. Uh, right. And then if you're looking for a work of history, um, the 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 big book right now is Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price. Uh, which is sort of a a very kind of big picture look at uh, the Scandinavians over the course of the high Middle Ages. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Absolutely. John Saxton, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's our show. If you are visited by a ghost seal staring morosely at you, please let us know on Twitter or Facebook. And recommend us to all your friends wherever you may voyage. And be sure to catch our next episode about Benedict Arnold's revolutionary career before he got famous for treachery. Did you know he led a famous and ill-fated expedition through Maine that was meant to liberate Quebec from the British in 1775, but which instead degenerated into a harrowing struggle to survive in the Maine North Woods? Fans of Gary Paulson books will not be disappointed. That's next time on Mainly History.